Okay, so uh, I got a, a cute little story. Uh, I always try to keep things current. So this is as current as it can get. So this weekend, it was my granddaughter, Marley Ray's uh, fourth birthday. It takes at least two days to do a four-year-old's birthday. I want you to know that. And so we went down to, uh, went down to South Florida early Friday morning, and then she had a birthday party yesterday. And so, you know, it's was interesting because the title of my sermon day is A Promise is a Promise. So of course, uh, Donna had t- promised Olivia that we would be there, and by golly, we were there. We were, um, and so as I w- we were going up and down the turnpike, and I noticed um, I was I watched this truck go by, and it got my attention. And um, it was they had this. Uh, it was like a little marquee on the side of the truck. It was a, a logo. It was it was a logo, but it also had um, a, a kind of a, the mantra of this particular company. And so I actually, um, I wrote it down and it was called Old Dominion Freight. And what's interesting is that, you know, I've spent, I actually spent 20 years in South Florida off and on. And I had never seen this truck before. I mean, you know, you see a lot of trucks going through, but I'd never seen this particular truck with this particular logo. And um, what was very interesting over the last two days, I saw that truck three different times. It just kept popping up. You know, these trucks kept showing. So this, was the, this is the, the key phrase, helping the world keep promises. And, and so I thought that's actually, actually very clever. I mean, that's a clever little mantra or motto for a freight country, a freight co- company to help them, reminds us that their intent is to help all, when they move in all this different freight, that people would be able to keep, their companies would keep their promises. Helping the world keep promises. And so I was thinking about this this last week because, um, once again, my sermon is about promises, keeping promises. And so I, I, I did a little research and I, I Googled some ideas about, you know, where, have I, where are we places that people have made promises and kept promises? And so I thought this was actually a really interesting promise that someone made about, I don't know, it was back in the 1980s or 90s. And let me show you the picture. Does anybody remember this guy? His name is Harry Carey. Anybody remember Harry Carey? Okay, so I don't know if you all remember, but the, the Cubs had a pretty long dry spell when it came to one in a World Series. I think it was from 1908 to 2016. So that's 108 years, okay. So Harry Carey was the face of the Chicago Cubs, and he was always notorious for saying, Cubs win, Cubs win. Well, they hardly ever won. So we actually said it only very seldom. And he also always had this phrase called, holy cow, he would say that. And so, well, that was just interesting because when I went back and saw one of the videos of Harry Carey, he had promised the Cubs fans that someday the Cubs would actually win a World Series. Now, what's interesting is he was right. Now, he didn't live to see it, but he was actually, he was right. And so I thought, so when I started researching this, I found another story of a guy by the name of Wayne Williams. And evidently, Wayne and his father were big Cubs fans. And they had made a promise that wherever they were, that someday when the Cubs got to the World Series, that they would watch the World Series together. Well, of course, this is back in the early 1970s or 80s. So um, Wayne's father ended up dying in the 1980s. Of course, the Cubs hadn't won the World Series. They continued to go on for another 40 years and lose. 
And um, so Wayne obviously became an older person. And um, so when Wayne moved to North Carolina, and uh, when they buried his father, he was buried in Indiana. And so when the Cubs finally got to the World Series, well, after all, a promise is a promise, right? So Wayne dro drove all the way from North Carolina to Indiana. And here's a picture of Wayne by his father's tombstone watching the Cubs play the World Series. Isn't that amazing? I mean, a promise is a promise. You know, my, my father is one of the most influential, probably the most influential person in my life. And my father promised me when I was a little boy that he would always be there for me. And he was. And so um, I have always tried to honor that. I mean, I, I really have tried my very best. If, if I'm going to say if I'm going to do something, by golly, I'm, I'm going to be very determined to do it. I'm going I'm to do my very best to back up my promise. And, and I got that actually from my father. And uh, because he promised he would always be there for me. And so the other night, my son Jordan calls me up. It was Sunday night. And um, <clears throat> he says, uh, Dad, I I've got a problem. And I, which is, that would be normal because the only time they call is when they have a problem. <laughs> so he calls me up. I said, well, Jordan, what's your problem? He says, my car won't start. And he says, what do I do? I said, what did they say? We'll take it and get it fixed. But I did say that because that would be insensitive on my part. And I said, well, what's it doing? And he says, well, it, it's not starting, but the lights are coming on. And I said, Jordan, it sounds like you got a dead battery. He says, you really think that's what it is, Dad? I said, I think that's what it is. I said, do you have jumper cables? And he said, no. I said, well, go find some. And so his friends had loaned him some jumper cables, and then he got his girlfriend to drive him back over to the UCF campus to be able to, and, and so lo and behold, the old man's actually right, right? <laughs> it was just a battery, right? And so, you know, I, I was reflecting upon that story last Sunday night, and um, I started thinking, why did Jordan call me? And I think in the back of his mind, I have tried to be like my father, that Jordan knew that somehow I would always be there for him. And that's the reason why he called the old man. And we got it fixed, right? We got it worked out. Because after all, a promise is a promise. So I was thinking this week uh, about this, this story, and uh, here's a couple of great stories, because see, here's, God is a God of great promises, can be meant on that. And so here, let me just share with you all, because we have these diff two different texts, and so this goes back all the way to the Old Testament, and then we have this to the New Testament, because for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no more. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness for the time on forever. Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Fast forward. I mean, after all, God is a God of great promises. A promise is a promise. The Lord God will give him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. A promise is a promise. 
I love this quote. Um, I was reading in my little book this week, Jill uh, Levine, who um, wrote The Light of the World, and I'm using some of the, her exegesis, and she said this, Joseph and Mary found themselves at the crossroads of promises given and promises fulfilled. I thought that was really good. So we have this story, and it's got such great information. I mean, it's just, just dripping with all this great theology, and it connects with the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it starts off, you know, what's interesting is there's this theme, and I've talked about this before in the Christmas narrative, that it has a lot to do with, like, fear. you like, fear not. You hear this over and over again. Like, so when Zachariah was in the temple, and he was um, sprinkling the incense, we, the first thing, angel Gabriel, uh, angel comes to him and says, hey, fear not. And then you got uh, Mary's story today where the angel came to her and says, fear not. And then we got Joseph's story where the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And so we have that. And then we have the, the angels uh, coming to the shepherds today's story. And first things I, hey, listen, fear not. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news, tidings of great joy. So we find this theme over and over again. Don't be afraid. I was, um, when I was at my church at Faith, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I would teach the preschoolers. And uh, we had about, I don't know, maybe 150 kids in this preschool program. And you know what? When you put 150 kids on the 153 four-year-olds, it's like herding cats. I just want you to know that. And so, so we, would, we would put them all on the stage for Christmas. And uh, they would do their annual Christmas pageant. And it was just uh, hysterical because... You see all these preschool parents coming. Now, this is like 20 years, 10, 15 years ago. And guess what we used to have? Handicaps. You remember they're the size of a tank and they would come in and they would be like knocking each other over and, and have to be able to watch, you know, this is the way it was. It was just kind of bedlam. And so I would always coach up the preschoolers, the three or four-year-olds before the big night. And so when I would do the chapel, I would talk about the story and I would talk about the angel Gabriel saying, don't be afraid. And I said, you have nothing to be afraid of. And they would look at me with big saucer eyes. I said, don't worry, it's all gonna be fine. You're gonna be doing great. I said, don't be afraid because you know, angel Gabriel says, don't be afraid. And once again, you put them up on the stage and half stage and half of them would cry and they were just a mess, right? And, and so in my teaching, I would teach them over and over again, like, um, that the whole theme about you know the idea of uh, the Christmas story and you know and then Mary and Joseph and and so I, I remember um, talking specifically about the angel Gabriel one day um, and I remember telling them now because you're teaching three year olds you have to repeat and so I I bet you I said it ten times now the angel's name was Gabriel and I have repeat back. And the angel's name was Gabriel. And I had him repeat it back. I got to the end after saying it 10 times. I said, now what was the angel's name? One little boy says, his name was Alex. I think it was the next week I taught on uh, the wise men and, and, and I asked at the end of the story after saying, now they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And one kid raises his, I said, what did he bring? He says, gold, frankincense, and mayo. And he said, that was mayonnaise. <laughs> you see how great, I'm just an incredibly gifted teacher. I, I, true story, I'm not making that up. So we had this story today and it begins, so let's just teach for a second. It begins with this theme of a census. Um, 
And so if you go back and look, as Luke, once again, Luke is a storyteller here, and he, he's telling the story, and as soon as he throw in that word senses, it, it kind of lights things up. It, it, because we, we know that the emperor um, has sent out this census. And what does this census do? Well, the census has everything, well, even now, even modern times, you know, it has to do with, um, you know, gathering information, people live in a certain demographic, which has to do with actually politics about elected officials and about money being uh, pushed to certain geographical areas because of the census. We, we even know that, okay. So back then, the census really had to do with a couple of big important things. It had to do a lot with do with military and people live in a certain area, but it also had a whole lot to do with taxes. And so once um, Luke, in telling the story about the emperor sending out this, this little plea, this census, the little translation, which means decree, and the Greek has everything to do with the word dogma, which has to do with means you had to show up. It means that if the emperor said it, it meant if you didn't do it, you would be in big, big trouble. Okay, so there's this, there's this tension that's going on between two kingdoms. Because Jesus enters in the middle of this decree, this census, and Jesus is representing a whole different kingdom. And what's very interesting is, that I, I thought this is kind of powerful, is that the word there, the census went out to all the world. Don't miss the detail. Okay, of course, the Roman Empire was like encompassing, you know, this idea of the whole world. And so enter Jesus in the midst of this decree that was very political, that was very about the kingdom, which was the reign of Rome that was about Caesar Augustus and whatever Caesar said, people did. But then what's very interesting as Luke is telling the story is Jesus's message is for the whole world. I mean, yet the the idea of the emperor who represents the Roman Empire, the whole world. But then Luke and his storytelling detail gives us that little nugget there. He, that Jesus is ultimately coming and he's going to rule over the whole entire world. You get all that just from one little word, census. That, you know, making sure that in the midst of this backdrop, uh, Luke wants us to know that. And then we find this other little detail. So we find that Jesus uh, is, um, well, his dad, dad uh, Joseph, is from the line of David. So they have to go to where? Bethlehem. And so well, they, they find their way and there, there's this sense of movement in this story that Luke wants us to know. Uh, Matthew wants us to know movement also because there's a place in which the Holy Family actually has to end up where they end up, Egypt. So they, there's a sense of movement in this story. So Luke has them moving from Nazareth going all the way to Bethlehem because David, it's all Joseph is part of the family tree, the root of Jesse. We got all that going on. And so, so, David, so Joseph and, and Mary are moving to Bethlehem. And what's very interesting is that we get this little detail um, while Quirinius was the, was the governor, which is very interesting that Luke would throw that in there. And why would you have to ask, why would Luke throw that little detail in there? Well, it's because Quirinius, when his reign, there was a lot of revolt. Now, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. 
And what do we find in Acts? We find this little story. Judas is the Galilean, appeared and got some people to follow him in a revolt. He was killed too. And all his followers scattered far and wide. And what's interesting is that what Luke, as he's telling the story, he wants people to understand the backdrop of the story that Jesus is coming. He's come for the whole world. He puts that little detail. But we also know that this story is really Jesus comes not to bring about a revolt. Jesus comes to be able to save the world. And there is a difference. So Mary and Joseph end up, and they end up in, in Bethlehem. And we know that from the story that we get this little, and we get, it's just loaded. This one little phrase, Luke 2, 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and they wrapped him bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so why in the world did Luke put all that detail in there? I mean, the idea, inn. Okay, so no room in the inn. I mean, uh, we're, uh, we're thinking Holiday Inn, right? Well, you know, they didn't have Holidayism back there. So there, the, what's very no room at the end is because back then, um, the, the idea of an inn would be almost like a hostel. It would be a place that would, be like, it would kind of like be a public gathering place. It wouldn't be like what we would be associated. This is 2,000 years ago. Um, the best thing I could think about, reflect upon was um, when my kids went to Japan, they stayed at a hostel. And I said, what was that like? And they, because it was really cheap. And um, it was like living kind of in a barracks, right? Everybody, you got these bunk beds and everybody's just kind of there and you kind of share a shower. And so, so that's the way it was. I remember when I ran the Boston Marathon one year. And so um, I remember I only had so many, so much time to be able to get from the finish line to take a shower to make my next flight. And so we, I remember finding a little hostel place and I'm thinking, well, you know, you just kind of go when I took a shower in there and it was just kind of like a bunkhouse. And so this is the environment, then the idea of an inn. And guess what? There ain't a whole lot of privacy there. So really a very conducive place for a woman to give birth. There was no room for them in the end. There was no room for them in this place because there really wasn't privacy there. So then they end up in a barn, right? We all know that part of the story. And, and, and we find that what's very interesting, I, in my research this last week, I, that's just is amazing because she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she laid him where? In a manger or a feed box. Okay. I learned this last week. Then I was uh, getting my teeth cleaned uh, this last Thursday at, at Dr. Bryant. He's my dentist. And, and so Dr. Bryant's wife is French. And I said, uh, Mrs. Bryant, I, I read this this last week. And can you con make, confirm this with me? And I was reading that the French word for manger is it literally means to eat. Okay, and so I got my book that I was reading and I took it to her and I read that to her and she says, exactly, that's exactly what it means in French, to eat. And so what's very powerful in this imagery that Luke is telling his story is that this is a place that they take Jesus and they lay him in a place that is earmarked a place to eat. And so what, what's powerful about these images is we watch Jesus continue to live out his life. Jesus is always, well, once again, once, what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. 
Jesus reminds us over and over again that he gathered with the saints and the sinners. He, he got, I mean, once again, he, he had a chance to break bread and to take the bread and the fish and he fed 5,000. Uh, Jesus was not a, uh, had no problem having dinner with the tax collectors. Matter of fact, he had a pretty good dinner with a guy named Zacchaeus one day. Or the, or the Pharisees had a pretty good dinner with Simon. He taught him some things one day. And so Jesus is really all about eating, right? When, when, and, and this representation, this symbolism that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so enter, as, G, as Luke is telling the story, he, they bring Jesus and they lay him in a feeding trough or a feeding box, which is a place to eat. I thought this is really interesting because um, if you look at your Bible, there's a, there's a book in the Bible called the Song of Solomons, but there's actually, there's a, another book that did not make it into the canon or which we call the Bible, uh, but it's called the, the Book of Solomon. And what's very interesting, there is in the Book of Solomon, this line that goes something like this, King Solomon is nurtured by snug clothes and good care which is connected to the idea that, you know, uh, and they took Jesus and they laid him in a feeding box or a place to eat and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And so then you find this part of the story. I, I think, it, and once again, you have to understand that Matthew and Luke, you got two Christmas stories and so Luke is looking through Mary's eyes. Matthew's looking through Joseph's eyes. We've got uh, Luke, you've got the, the shepherds. Matthew, you got the wise men. And it's all, when you look at the nativity scenes around the villages, you got the whole bundle. You got a little bit of Luke and you got a little bit of Matthew. You got amen on that. Okay, that's what you're looking at. Okay, so what's very interesting, if you look at the story, is that, so we, we have this transition from Mary and Joseph, as Luke's telling the story, we got the census between you got the two power parts of the kingdom. You got the kingdom of God and Caesar Augustus and his Roman kingdom. We got all that going on. And then you've got, you go from inside, inside a, a stable. And all of a sudden we're back outside. And where are we back outside? We're back out in the middle of a shepherd's field. It's interesting how Luke kind of weaves this all together, right? And so he, we find out in the middle of the shepherd's field, uh, we, we find um, shepherds out feeding their flocks by night. By the way, I, I, I almost guarantee you that Jesus probably broke bread with shepherds as well. Which is interesting because you realize that shepherds were kind of these, this group, they were um, uneducated, uh, they were um, unclean, ritually unclean, and they were a little, they were actually sketchy people. I mean, the people didn't really trust them, which is just amazing to me, isn't it? I mean, think about this. Out of all the people, and maybe that's the point that Luke wants us to get, out of all the people, out of all the times, out of all the places, God chooses shepherds to use in this Christmas story of bringing the King of Kings into the world. It's amazing to me. So you have these uneducated, these un, kind of untrustworthy, these, these unassuming shepherds out watching their flocks by night. And what are they watching? What are the shepherds watching? They're watching what? Sheep. Now, what's interesting, what most people don't realize, is that there is a, 
about what they call a, a stone kind of watchtower just outside of Bethlehem. Okay? And it's a thousand paces from Bethlehem. And the shepherds would watch their flocks by night. Now, why would the shepherds watch their flocks by night? It's because they had to make sure that their sheep, nine day, were actually taken care of. Why do they have to make sure they were taken care of? It's because they believed that the sheep that they were watching in Bethlehem, which is right down the road from Jerusalem, what's happened in Jerusalem at the temple? They would sacrifice the sheep. Oh, there's a thought. So the shepherds are watching the sheep that potentially will be sacrificed in the temple. You see how Luke's telling this story? I mean, there would be a day that Jesus Christ comes and symbolizes that he is ultimately the sacrificial lamb that's come to take away the sins of the world. Wow. Luke's quite the storyteller, isn't he? And so we look at the story and we have these, these uneducated, these unclean shepherds that Jesus, God chooses out of all the people to show up anywhere, anytime. God just shows up. He can use just even shepherds. And, and then we got this part of the story that the angels show, the angels show up. And not just any angel. I mean, a whole host of angels, lots and lots of angels. And, and what's the first word? Don't be afraid. I bring you good news. And so I can understand that why they might be a little bit afraid. So the good news comes to the angel, to, from the angels to the shepherds who are the uneducated, the unclean, how God could use this group of people to be a part of the Christmas story. Now, what's very interesting, once again, Luke is a great storyteller. Did you realize the word good news actually had a different twist? And here's the different twist. Who was in charge? Caesar Augustus. Who made the decrees? Caesar Augustus. Who's in charge of the whole world? Caesar Augustus. And the little translation, the word good news, had everything to do with Caesar Augustus' birthday. So the good news was connected. There would be a decree that went out and everybody was supposed to celebrate the birth of Caesar Augustus, who was also claimed to be God. Now, once and again, Luke is a brilliant storyteller. And what are the words that are found on the lips of the angels? I bring you good news of great joy. And so as Luke is taken and telling the story, he gives it a total different twist because as people are reading this 2,000 years ago, they realize, one minute, we thought the good news had anything to do with Caesar Augustus. And then Luke's saying, no, 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 the good news has nothing to do with Caesar Augustus. The good news has everything to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. And then we find this part of the story, it's great, because the good news, once again, I mean, the idea, this, this contrast between Caesar Augustus, who, I mean, when Caesar Augustus, um, I mean, don't you realize that how COVID messed with us? Do you realize that how, I mean, COVID just kind of changed everything. It just kind of 
flip things upside down. It, it just kind of just really made things kind of topsy-turvy. So when Caesar Augustus throws a decree out, and everybody has to move. I mean, it just made everything kind of un, unbalanced. And, and so what's beautiful about this imagery is that Jesus came not to unbalance things. Jesus came to anchor things, not to displace us, to keep us centered. And then um, I think this is great because the good news has everything to do with salvation. And salvation meant th different things to different people. So salvation could mean to some people, it could mean like, well, not being saved from war or from hunger or disease or plague or oppression, right? But for, for, for Luke, the good news of Jesus Christ means that Jesus Christ came to save us from sin and death. Can I amen on that? There's a difference about salvation. And so we look at the story and, and so the heavenly hosts come and they bring the good news and Jesus is in the embodiment of celebrating this precious gift of salvation. And what's very interesting also is that once the angels leave, they don't go to Bethlehem. But the shepherds go to Bethlehem. Matter of fact, don't miss the detail. The next time the angel shows up, is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is different because we don't get good news there. Jesus is about to be killed. The angel of the Lord is sent by God to give Jesus strength. So we have this story, and once again, Luke is this brilliant storyteller as he kind of weaves it all together. And so the angels go, and they find themselves in Bethlehem, by the way, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. And so they get to Bethlehem. And what I think, I think the one that, the way that as Luke is weaving this story together, I think it's beautiful because I think as Mary and Joseph are there in this stable and she gives birth to Jesus and these uneducated kind of unclean shepherds show up and they share what they've experienced from the angels. And I think, it, I think Mary and Joseph needed that. I think that Mary and Joseph, Joseph received this validation that all of this that had been given to them once again is validated by these shepherds. It's the truth. It's all gonna come to fruition. And Jesus... So, so we, we find that part of the story. And then we, we find this last little part. And as they kind of, once again, as Luke is once they kind of weaving the story together, because Luke wants us to get the bigger picture. Uh, so we can not fully appreciate the Annunciation until we witness the birth. We cannot appreciate the birth until we have walked with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. We don't understand the journey to Jerusalem until we have walked with Jesus to the cross. We don't understand the walk to the cross until we walk to the tomb. We don't understand walking out of the tomb until we have walked to Emmaus. We don't understand our walk to Emmaus until we have walked the back to Jerusalem to tell everyone what we just seen. I love that quote. So then Mary and Joseph, Mary's given birth to Jesus, laid him in a manger, a place to eat, connected with Jesus being the bread of life. The shepherds show up, watching the sacrificial lambs. Tell Mary what happens. And then they end up in the temple. And you find two people in the temple, according to the Gospel of Luke. 
And, uh, and so we, we find what's very interesting is that Simeon has been there and he has been waiting. Um, the word consolation. Uh, the, he's been waiting for the Savior to come. And what's again, God is a God of promises, right? So God has promised the, um, Simeon that he would not die until he sees him. So you see Mary and Joseph coming up the steps. And he finally realizes, there he is. And what I love this part of the story is, Simeon is reflecting upon his whole life, waiting for this moment, and he's holding, he's holding the Savior of the world in his hands. I love that. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Literally, Simeon's holding the Christ child. And he's got the whole world in his hands. I love that image. And then we find this other little detail that the prophet Anna's there. And what's interesting about Anna is that she's from a priestly line called Asher. You know, um, Jesus had how many disciples? Twelve. Twelve connected with the twelve tribes. Well, what was one of the tribes? Asher. Anna is representing the tribe of Asher. And so when Jesus comes, it's, it's the idea, the culmination that someday that all the 12 tribes would come back together. By the word, the word Asher means happy. And so what's beautiful about the story is that it's powerful because Jesus Christ is, once again, brings joy to the world. And then what's very powerful, once again, is you kind of reflect upon the story and Anna's there and she's been waiting her whole, matter of fact, Simeon would come and go, but Anna lived at the temple waiting for this day. And what's very powerful is you look at the story and how it all kind of comes, finally comes together and Simeon did make this one little detail. By the way, I shared with you all last week. I saw, talked about how when you, when, when when God would come and give somebody this great super news, but there's always a catch. And so Mary has been given this great super news that she's going to give birth to this child. But the catch is, well, don't miss the detail. Uh, a sword, Mary, will pierce your innermost soul too. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Who was there? Mary. See the catch? Luke wants us to understand that. What happens at the very beginning of the story comes full circle at the end of the story. So I, I'm, I'm, I was thinking, once again, let me just wrap this up. So here's, here's just a thought. Um, a promise is a promise. God is a God of great promises and he delivers in Jesus Christ. I mean, what happens, what's fulfilled or actually prophesied in Isaiah is comes to fruition in the gospel of Luke and Matthew. It comes full circle. And so I, um, I begin my message with this, this idea that Harry Carey, remember that guy? Okay, Harry Carey made a promise to Cubs fans that what was gonna happen? What was gonna happen? Someday they were gonna win the World Series, right? You know, Harry Carey is quite the charismatic guy. 
And you know what he's famous for? Not only saying, holy cow, he's not only famous for saying Cubs win, but he was also famous for the seventh inning stretch. And what did they do on the seventh inning stretch? They would sing a song, right? And this is the song. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if we never get back. Root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Okay, so what's very powerful, you know what Harry Carey had? He had curse. He had it. And what was powerful was that Harry Carey could get everybody, it didn't even matter if you were a Cubs fan, you still staying up, stood up in the seventh inning. This whole community, thousands and thousands of people, and he would get them up and everybody would sing the same song. And that Jesus Christ came to get us all on the same page, for the whole world to sing the same song. Joy to the world. What is it called? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Amen.